Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Bailey Troutman, a PhD student at CU Boulder, and this is a show that asks old questions about new technology, even addressing questions that should have been asked a long time ago. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder, where I work as a graduate fellow. I've been interested in studying technology since I took a class on digital media literacy as an undergraduate student my junior year. Data farms, or data centers, have been of particular interest to me, leading to my master's thesis on Google's data centers, renewable energy, and policy. As I've studied and learned, I've realized how much is missing or lacking in conversations, theorizing, and concepts related to the intersections of race, technology, and the world. This past summer, I, like many of us, was urgently moved to action after the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and countless other lives as Black Lives Matter protests called for heightened awareness and change of systemic oppression, racism, police brutality, and all violence against Black people. This awareness, education, and these conversations are just the beginning, and I, perhaps like some of you, am trying to understand and recognize my own whiteness, privilege, positionality, and the experiences of Black people and people of color to be an advocate for change and liberation. This journey requires identifying and unpacking patterns and systems of oppression from many levels, also noting them when they appear in theories, concepts, and conversations, frequently in the form of not reading certain scholars or having siloed knowledge between subject areas. Black scholars and activists are doing incredible work in all fields of study, and it's quite clear that understanding intersections of race and media are necessary and incredibly important, too. Our guest this month, Dr. Armand Towns, is doing such work, theorizing new ways to understand these intricate and important intersections. So, this month, we're going to have a conversation about race, media, and technology, asking the question, what is a Black media philosophy? Dr. Armand Towns is an assistant professor of rhetoric and communication studies at the University of Richmond, where he asks questions about race, sexuality, gender, class, space, and time. His recent publication in the Cultural Studies Journal, titled Toward a Black Media Philosophy, is a powerful theoretical work that argues that, quote, black bodies function as media. They are extensions of man and to his raced self-conceptions of the world. Dr. Towns also has a forthcoming book on Black media philosophy, and I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to have this conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Towns. Let's go ahead and get started. So the first question is, what led you to the question of what is Black media philosophy? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, the, the first kind of thing that led me to this was my graduate work. Um, I did a PhD in communication at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Um, And this training really kind of pushed me into this project. In particular, I had two classes. One was on um, technology and time, and the other one was on the work of Frantz Fanon. 
Um, so both of those classes, I felt like were speaking past each other in terms of the topics that they were touching on. There were similar themes, but they never fully engaged in a way that I thought was sufficient enough um, for both of them. So that really led me to start to ask, how can I bring these different topics together? Um, and that's where I kind of really started, you know, developing the early parts of what I'm calling a black media philosophy. That That's wonderful. I know classes have a way to like bring out those kinds of thoughts or like you have these moments where it's like, I need to connect these items somehow and I need to do work like that. So I think Absolutely. it's really cool that yeah. that's kind of what happened for you. Um, yeah. I guess yeah. when you think about the world, like how do you approach sense making? Like what, what kind of things maybe do you do or how do you, how do you think about reality? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, for me, what I've been trying to really think through is how, how there are different types and different understandings of the world, right? And different understandings of sense-making even, right? Um, one of my own like interests in media philosophy has been the way that the senses have been a central discussion of it, right? So, you know, one of my Excuse me. Big influences. Marshall McLuhan argues that media are any extension of the self, by which he means the senses, sight, sound, touch. Um, and what I find in McLuhan's work is that when he talks about the senses, right, and he talks about what I would say are these different types of world making, he's really talking about Western European, largely white men, right. Um, so, of course, there are alternative and different forms of worlds, different forms of sense making that McLuhan leaves out. So my work really tries to both understand that sensorial understanding of the world from people like McLuhan and also try to understand those alternative understandings of world making, of sense making um, that I think, you know, um, black people in particular have been largely theorizing even in ways that people don't think about as theory. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of continue on in this piece and you argue that black bodies have themselves been media. And can you, can you break that down a little bit for us? Yeah. I mean, I think this is a, this is a pretty complex thing that I'm working with. Um, so I think that maybe the best way to say it is that we have to start with an understanding that there's a difference between black bodies, as I'm using it, and black people, right? Um, black people, right, we, we have always understood ourselves as human. We have always considered ourselves as having a life, a politics, art, knowledge. Um, and those projects of knowledge that we as black people have engaged in have been largely ignored in the dominant Western spheres of knowledge. So even in, you know, higher education institutions, we largely learn history or canonical theories from different disciplines, and they are by and large coming from white people. Um, but black people, we've created alternative forms of knowledge that are material, that have been there for centuries. Um, so that's one side. Um, on the other side, there's the black body, which I am using as synonymous with the Negro. Um, so this is what the West imagines Black people to be. So what I mean by imagines, 
right, is not to say that it doesn't have any materiality or it doesn't have real consequences, right? There are very real, very material implications to this imagination of the black body, um, which means that the U.S. state has mobilized based on the idea of what black people are, which is often, so often, very disarticulated from black people in, in reality. So... <clears throat> Yeah. You imagine black bodies as inferior, um, and that then does work in society, right? Like that mobilizes things in society in ways that I find having commonality in the way that people in media philosophy talk about media. Um, so I'll stop there. No, I think that that's actually really wonderful. Um, so I appreciate that, that breakdown. And in media and technology studies specifically, Kind of how has this black media philosophy been absent over the years? Like what are the implications of that absence, especially beyond academia? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I've found in a lot of media philosophy, and I guess I should say what media philosophy is. Um, media philosophy is the study of the relationship between our technologies and what and how they inform what we think we, we are as humans, right? Um, so by and large, a lot of the, the kind of dominant studies of media philosophy have, have recently kind of been building off of um, the idea that there is a inherent discussion of nature inside of our technologies, so we're both on laptops, I assume, right? Um, in our laptops, we have, you know, natural materials that make it up. Gold, mercuries, right? Plastics, all of these things are in, at some point or another, pulled out of the earth, out of the elemental, and they are then transformed into the technologies that we use, whether we think about it like that or not. Um, so what I'm saying is that, you know, historically, Right. The thing that people have called black bodies have also been deemed as closer in proximity to nature. Right. So when you set it up like that, you can say, well, we have to at least acknowledge that there's a commonality in the way that media philosophy is talking about nature and the way that a white supremacist society talks about black people. Um, and that, to me, has been the kind of absent thing in a lot of media philosophy is the inability to understand the colonial ideas and concepts of what nature means itself. And that's the black media yeah, philosophy, yeah. Right? bringing those two areas together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so I, I was wondering too, you know, obviously these are enormous implications, especially when we think about the world and we're thinking about it outside of academia as well. And I, I wondered too, if you had any specific examples perhaps of, of these implications beyond that wonderful scenario you just shared with us. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, um, you know, if we think about like the, the history of associating black people with nature, Right. Um, you know, that to me is a central component that will organize the, the transatlantic slave trade. Right. Um, B.Y. Madembe has this book called The Invention of Africa. And in it, he basically argues that one of the things that the 
colonizers in Africa did was they they conflated the Black African people with nature, right? And that would be a central way through which you can oppress people, through which you can engage in forms of violence against people, right? You can enslave them, you can colonize them, you can justify your actions as, you know, in some ways, you know, and people like um, Hegel argued this, right? You can say that your violence, your racial violence is a way of civilizing a population, right? So then you have, you know, the history of transatlantic slavery, and you have even after transatlantic slavery, right? The continuance of Jim Crow, you have, you know, the continuance of gentrification, of ghettoization, of mass incarceration. All of these, I am arguing, are central to the idea that black bodies, right, which again is not black people, um, are are things, right, that can that can be mobilized um, in a way that is essentially an extension of what I'm calling an extension of a Western, largely white, largely male, largely capitalist uh, worldview. Right. So very explicit and indicative of historical and and current ties. Um, Kind of in your publication, you also highlight scholars like Marshall McLuhan, who was a prominent Canadian philosopher in media theory, and France Fanon, a French West Indian psychiatrist and political philosopher. How do you use these scholars in your work? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the the best way I can think about McLuhan and Fanon is they are metaphors for me to think with. Um, McLuhan is a metaphor for media philosophy. Uh, Fanon is a metaphor for black studies, right? And these are two areas that I want to bring together. And to bring them together, you know, we should acknowledge is tense, right? It's not an easy thing to bring together. Um, you know, and I think there's, there's reasons for that. So I'm not saying like, I've done like a perfect job, but I do think that, you know, that, that bringing them together in their contradictions, in their tensions can kind of open up something interesting. Um, so, so the reason that I, that I bring them together is kind of central to, to some of the stuff I've been saying so far, right, is they are two figures who are writing and thinking at the exact same time, right? Um, Fanon may be a little bit earlier, but still they're in that mid 20th century time period. And they are coming to very different conclusions. In some cases, they're reading the exact same people and they're reading them in very different ways. Um, So whereas McLuhan is reading, you know, them as kind of a, you know, the kind of psychiatric, psychological, social social Darwinian theory of the mid-20th century. He's reading that as evidence of this kind of technological development of what he calls man, right? Fanon is reading those same scholars and he's saying, well, these scholars completely assume that they are the epitome of man, that they, that Western Europeans in particular are the ultimate end of what it means to be human. And Fanon is saying no, right? So you have these two different reads of, in multiple cases, the same 
scholarship, but different conclusions. So I find that very, very interesting. And I think that, yeah, it's super interesting. Again, it was it was super engaging to read through this. And I know for those listeners who aren't going to read through it, this is also, I think, super helpful as well. Um, and I, I also want to highlight, too, a couple different arguments that you brought up for each one of the scholars and how you're working through them. And so I'll start with McLuhan. Um, McLuhan really argued at one point that the content of all media are other media. And so I was wondering, what does that mean for you? Yeah. So, you know, this is part of McLuhan's, you know, writing style is very, um, like, you know, he's an English scholar, right? So he's at times kind of, you know, very poetic in the things that he's saying um, and very descriptive in the things that he's saying. And I, 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 I really like that about his, his work. Um, and this concept, right, of the content of all media or other media, right, this phrase is going to be a central theme that you find throughout his work. It's also what drew me to his work. Um, and I think that a lot of, you know, media studies would do well to, to think with this. So, um, so briefly, right, McLuhan argues that all media are extensions of the human senses, right? I've kind of said this before, um, which is to say that, um, they are extensions of what he calls man or the human. And what he meant was each medium impacted your sensorial engagement in the world. So from here, you can really broaden media, right? Away from cell phones, away from laptops, away from televisions, right? Or whatever we think are of as typically media today. Um, and you can, you can like turn, you can kind of play with the concept of media, right? Um, so us talking right now, right? These are oral forms of communication, which McLuhan would say are media. It is an auditory, right? Um, sensorial extension, right? It impacts our senses of sound. It mediates our capacity to understand one another. That capacity can never be fully, like easily transmitted back and forth, right? There'll always be some noise, um, but it can bring us closer together. Now, if we take the words that we're saying right now and write them down using the phonetic alphabet, that's another medium, right? It extends the sense of sight for McLuhan. Um, and I should note that I don't fully agree with McLuhan's idea of the extension of senses. I'm just giving these as examples. Um, but now what you've done is you've broken down two forms of media, oral speech and written, right? Um, thus, what you've said is that my, my oral speech is the content of the potential transcription of this written speech, for McLuhan, then, right, it's it's like it's less important what I've said. It's more important that this form of oral speech is potentially the structure of what would be a written article. Right. So what you've done is you've said and so now we can do that for everything. Right. The content of film is photography. Right. The content of the telephone is uh, the phonograph. Right. Um, and you can. McLuhan says you can kind of extend that out to all different forms of media, the content of 
those media are always other media. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, that absolutely does make sense. Cool. Thank you so much. Yeah. So you're listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Dr. Armand Towns about media, technology, race, and Black bodies. So this brings me back to the other scholar that you work with in this piece. And again, we've kind of briefly introduced them and how you've been using them and working together. Um, but for Fanon, um, this argument that there's this re-understanding of man as new man, um, distinct from the valuation of the Western man. And so I wondered, could you unpack this for us a little bit? Like, what does it mean for you when you're using that that argument? Yeah, you know, this is a, a really, like, touchy thing because there's so many different interpretations of phenomena, right? And I think that they're all um, really good and really powerful, right? So, so if I was a philosopher, right, my idea of Fanon's new man by, might be related to a critique of ontology, or if I was a geographer, right, it might be a critique of space. Um, so all of these can be legitimate. But my route is through media studies, right? So as I've said, right, McLuhan talks about man. He talks about man is moving through these technological stages, Um and for McLuhan, those technological stages are, are really threefold, right? They're tribal, um, detribal, and retribal. So what I argue is that because McLuhan and Fanon are reading similar texts, that we could use Fanon's new man to talk about McLuhan's man, right? To talk about a critique of, of McLuhan's man. Um, so McLuhan's man, right, again, are these three figures. The tribal, by which he means the oral, right? The D-tribal, by which he means phonetic alphabet. He means the specifically the Gutenberg printing press, right? He's not talking about the older Chinese printing press. He's talking about Western European printing press. And the third is the D-tribal, which is the electronic media environment. Now, McLuhan, <clears throat> excuse me, argued that Black people in particular were largely tribal, right? That Black people, because we had this kind of tribal nature, um, we were violently going through these three stages through colonization. McLuhan, Black people, then, because we're violently going through these three stages, in his theorization, we're just derivatives of white people, right? It is our technological destiny to go through what the West has already gone through. Um, now, Fanon wants to argue, right, that, I mean, Fanon wants to kind of argue two things. Um, one, what would a new man look like, right? One that's not reducible to these Western white standards. That's not reducible to tribal, detribal, Sorry, tribal, detribal, retribal. I said it right. Um, in other words, right, black people have been 
human outside of these social, technological, Darwinian constructs that McLuhan assumes um, that we're all a part of. And second, what would this new man look like that calls from a full break from these constructs? In other words, for Fanon, this new man is a figure who calls for a radical decolonial break from the Western concept of humanism, right? Which, you know, doesn't, it's, in other words, I, I think the, the way to think about it is that Fanon's new man both is um, showing us the limits of this older Western humanist project, but it's also saying, how do we break out of it, right? Um, how do we create a new man, by which he means a, a new human, right, that is not structured on your racial, biological setup, and instead is structured on a, on a praxis, on what you do in the world, right? And in order to do that, Fanon believed that you had to decolonize, right? You had to create a new world out of the colonial structure. Um, which for him was inherently a, a project of violence. Um, and we can debate what that violence means, but that was, that was his, his idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, um, that kind of has made me rethink about so many things, especially, you know, as I, I mentioned, I am super interested in technology and, and media and these, these right. scholars, I think, um, I think you're right in that they can work together in, in so many ways. Like you can put them together in, in a space as you did in this article and and come up with things that are, I think are really impactful for the future of the field, but also too for those of us outside of academia, you know, and understanding our own positionality in the world and how we use devices and how we think through things and all these conversations that are happening right now as well. So um, I think that it's really great. So I appreciate your, your breakdown there. Cool. I was wondering too, um, what are some trends that you've noticed in the focus of, of studies of, of blackness and media and even technology? Like what, what have you been seeing maybe in the mm -hmm. past and then now maybe recently? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the, it's kind of a difficult question because there's so many decades of like research on media and blackness. Um, but I think, you know, one, maybe one of the things I could say is that um, in a lot of the research, there's been a concern with media content, right? But not the way that McLuhan talks about it, right? But in the way that we mean media content more colloquially. Um, so in other words, media content as media representation. So um, this particular, you know, for example, a television show is racist or a movie is racist because of a depiction that happens inside of the movie or inside of an episode of Black people. Um, and, you know, I don't want to demean those studies. They're important studies and they've actually really influenced me. Um, but they are one of the main focuses that I've noticed when it comes to media um, and blackness. And, you know, what I want to argue is for a focus on materiality, right? Which is why I'm pointing to the black step, to the black body in media studies, um, a focus on 
you know, not just the episode, right? Not just the movie, right? But what happens to the transformation of society when a television set is introduced into that society, right? McLuhan would argue that the television set itself completely transformed that society. It made it into something different. And I want to build off of that and say that, you know, the racialized idea of the black body also transforms society, right? Um, It is a central project for a Western concept of humanity, a concept of civilization and even nature, right? So there are material implications with the introduction of these different media. Um, And that's that's one of the things that I'm that I view myself as trying to break away from in a lot of media studies and black studies of blackness. Mm. And I, I know too that a couple of of new works have kind of come out in the last few years. I believe Dr. Simone Brown's work, Dark Matters, mm-hmm. and you have Dr. Ruha Benjamin, um, Race After Technology. And I was wondering um, because you know these are starting to kind of emerge. And I know, especially for Dr. Benjamin's book, um, it's been picked up quite a few times um, by by a lot mm-hmm. of people. And I was wondering, how how do you think that those types of works are working together, perhaps, with what you're also working on, or, you know, in the future trends of where we can see these intersections between, you know, studies of, of Blackness, race, technology, media. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, just any mm-hmm. any of your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't do what I do without the work of people like Simone Brown and Ruha Benjamin. Um, and I think that, you know, the the type of material analysis that they're doing um, in terms of technology studies is exactly what I'm trying to point at, right, with media studies. Um, now, I think that, you know, my entrance into this question of materiality is different because I start with McClure, right? Because that is the, that's my training, right? That's, that's you know, one of the kind of figures that I learned from grad school that I just couldn't get out of my head. Um, so because of that, you know, the way that I've thought about media and technology is through McLuhan's understanding and McLuhan's assumption of the human, right? McLuhan's uh, concept of man. Um, and, you know, through that, I was able to say, you know, and, and, you know, I think Simone Brown is doing this for surveillance studies, right? Um, which, of course, has technological implications. Um, and, you know, Ruha Benjamin is doing this for, like, science and technology studies, right? Feminist science and technology studies. Um, and those are, you know, and me doing it from media philosophy, right? These are three very different um, theoretical lineages, that have a lot of overlap, but they start in different places, right? Um, so because of that, you know, because I start with media philosophy, I start by saying, you know, not just that media philosophy has had a difficulty with studying race, with studying gender, right? We know these things. But because McLuhan, you know, is viewed as this canonical theory inside of media philosophy, because he starts with this concept of man even when he's not talking about race, it is raced, right? It is already flushed throughout his theory. Um, So then we have to say, you know, 
even as people are kind of moving away from McLuhan's concept of humanity, what happens when they continue to accept his concept of nature, right? Um, and that's kind of where I'm going. And so, you know, that's a long way of saying I'm, I'm highly influenced by, you know, Brown and, and Benjamin, um, but I'm, I, I see myself as part of a different theoretical legacy because I'm coming at it through a media philosophy perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, important distinctions. And I'm really glad that you, you brought those up. Um, and this also kind of leads me back. I know that you've definitely unpacked this a little bit so far and, you know, at least somewhat explicitly, implicitly, what have you, but I want to ask you the question, what does it mean that a black media philosophy asks less to do, um, with what does the black body mean and more, what does the black body do? Yeah. You know, I think for my, my understanding of this is very much based in McLuhan's understanding of this because he asked a similar question um, throughout his work. Right. And part of the assumption of what something means versus what it does is that we can, we can start with the idea that the, central kind of discussion of media begins with the traditional understanding of media content. So I am, you know, watching a particular television show and I come out of that show with a particular meaning, right? Now McLuhan wants to say, but what did the television do? Now, if we think about that, Right? If we think about that from that perspective, we could say, well, the television actually brought us images from around the world at increasing speeds, right? That we previously, right, with, let's say, the newspaper, right? We had to wait months sometimes to hear about what happened overseas for somebody to sail over um, and then to write it, right? With the invention of the electric telegraph, that, that time period shrunk, right? With the invention of the radio, that time period shrunk. So once you get to television, right, you are now starting to see images um, of what's happening around the world, right? So McLuhan says that that idea, right, it creates what he calls a global village. And that global village means that it's not so much what you're watching, it's the fact that everybody is watching at the same time, right? So this is why, you know, McLuhan argues that, you know, it makes sense that television is going to be the central medium at the time in the U.S. in particular, when you see the emergence of people protesting the Vietnam War, right? Think about U.S. culture and war, right? By and large, U.S. culture and war has been, oh, we're going to war, we support our troops. The Vietnam War is the first time where people massively said, no, we're, we're against this. And it's because they're seeing images of people, sometimes their own age, right, especially the college students, that are being killed, that are being slaughtered, right? Typically, you know, and this is why, you know, today, you know, people don't like to show images of war because of the Vietnam War, right? So 
you know, um, the television then introduced us to a very different environment. Um, now, again, that's not to say that the representation doesn't matter, but it is to say that it did transform the way we think about the world. It did create, you know, um, a nearly instantaneous, right? And people are going to argue that McClellan was really predicting the internet, right? But with his understanding of the global village, um, and that's up for debate, but it really kind of created a very quick um, image that we could see of what was happening from two people from around the world. So it does something, right? It doesn't just mean something, it does something. And so similarly then, you're taking that that line of of reasoning and you're applying it then to the black body and you're saying, what does the black body mean and more of what does it actually do? And so for you, um, again, you've probably already spoken to this, but could you unpack a little bit more about what does that mean for you? Yeah. Yeah. So the black body does something in society, which is to say that um, with the increasing secularization of the 19th century, right, of which, you know, Darwin's um, on the origin of species is probably the central kind of text that most people point to, but it's not just Darwin. Right. Darwin is just a part of a larger context where this is where this is occurring. But with that, right, all of a sudden you are starting to see that race is now a biological thing. Right. Which is to say, you know, and this is this happens at a very specific time period. Right. You have a rising argument that, you know, we are all one under God. Right. This is the the abolitionist debate, right? Because God has made us one, you cannot enslave another person. You cannot enslave another human being. And at the exact same time that that argument is occurring, you have arguments to say, well, no matter if you believe in, you know, Christ or not, you are biologically inferior to me. You are different from me, right? So at that point, Right. At that 19th century moment, the black body does different work. Prior to that time. Right. You can make the argument that, you know, we can just convert people. Right. All you got to do is convert and we'll be the same. We'll all be equal. Right. But after that moment, you know, with the solidification of biology as the thing. Right. The black body now does specific work. And that work is to solidify a biological superiority, inferiority model, right? It further entrenches the idea of humanity along biological lines, right? And maybe more accurately, biocapitalist lines, right? Sylvia Winter says, you know, that this is a, this is a myth, right? This is a genre of human. Right, the biocapitalist Western man, right, which he calls man two, right, um, which means there was a man one before that. But for Clary's sake, this biocapitalist man um, is a new figure, right, that didn't exist. Um, it existed, but it didn't exist exactly in the exact same frame prior to that. And 
the black body is one medium that helps to maintain that. I think there are others as well, right? I'm not trying to say that only black people are media or black bodies are media. There's a whole history of race that is a part of this, but the black body is what I focus on for that. Absolutely. You're listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Dr. Armand Towns about media, technology, race, and Black bodies. So kind of moving a little bit away, um, I do want to ask a a question I I want to ask so many people, and that is, you know, what do you hope that your piece and your work overall can provide audiences with maybe inside of academia, but also outside of academia? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, inside of academia, right, um, I am really interested in expanding um, the the limits, right, of what I see of media philosophy. Um, and, you know, I think that <clears throat> for, you know, the past however many years, right, I've, I've seen people say, you know, well, race is missing from this or gender is missing from this. Um, so I want to, I want to expand that Right. I want to show how race and gender and sexuality are actually inherently a part of the media philosophy project, even when it's not mentioned explicitly. Um, mm. So inside of academia, that's that's what I'm interested in doing. Um, outside of academia, I am not really interested in that at all. I'm more interested in um thinking about, you know, the production of thinkers, right? I'm interested in thinking about the production of people who are, who are interested in concerned with transforming our world for the better. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, there's nothing inherently like central about higher education and the production of thinkers, right? You know, Malcolm X is probably one of our best thinkers. He never went to college, um, but he went to colleges and debated some of the biggest scholars and really destroyed their arguments. Um, So I wanna really, you know, use the university, right? As a way of not like producing thinkers like Malcolm X, but as a way of saying, how can we think about knowledge outside of the university, right? That doesn't always center center the university as the space from which knowledge comes. Um, And I think that for me, at least, that that points to a a need to to produce various different types of thinkers, both in and also outside of the university. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And that kind of also leads me into another question, um, which I know that you teach um, at the University of Richmond, which is great. And so I was wondering, when you teach undergraduate students about a Black media philosophy, for example, what questions do they have? And like, what kind of conversations do these types of questions actually bring up? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if I've 
really taught my students about a black media philosophy. Um, I would say that I, I teach my students how I got to the argument of a black media philosophy, if that makes sense. Um, so I, I always feel weird, you know, and I'm, I may be one of those rare professors. I feel weird about like sharing my own work <laughs> to my students. I, I'm more interested in saying, these are the people that I've read that helped me get to this. Um, and I think, you know, at least in my experience, what that's done is that has really helped my students to not only understand my theory, but also to see how they can make their own theories. Um, so, you know, a lot of my work and my teaching uh, is concerned with the history and the development of Black studies, but also the history and development of media and communication studies. Um, so much of this, you know, as we've kind of noted, revolves around the work of Fanon and McLuhan, but also other scholars, right? So, you know, in media philosophy, I think about Harold Ennis, um, I think about Sybil Kramer, um, Sarah Sharma, who was my dissertation advisor, um, Jody Berlin, Lisa Gittleman, Whereas in Black Studies, I think about people like Sylvia Winter, uh, Walter Rodney, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, Gordon Spiller, uh, Catherine McKittrick, right? So these are these are kind of some of the figures that I, I bring into my classes, right? So that my my students can both see how I've developed my theory, but also they can see interconnections with um, with maybe how they can think about their own theory, right? How they can utilize these figures um, in a way that is generative for, for what they want to do and think about in the world. No, absolutely. And another thing that also kind of brings up for me, because I totally um, can appreciate and understand that. And I know I always enjoyed classes that, that did those things as well. Um, and I was just wondering too, do you have any specific types of exercises or activities that you use, or maybe even like, I don't know, like thought experiments or, or whatever, where you're engaging them and helping them kind of understand how they can make those connections with perhaps this line of scholarship and then their own experiences in the world. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I feel like my students, my, my, I, I can blab. <laughs> so a lot of my students are like, just keep blabbing, keep going, don't stop. Um, so I guess, you know, maybe one of the things that, um, that I've done in my courses is I really like the, um, like the kind of discussion group model. I like to ask a question or write it on the board and then have my students, you know, get into small groups and think about the question together, right. And then come back and, and hear their answers, hear their responses, um, I think for me, that's that's been a good way to kind of, you know, generate conversation, generate thought. Um, and then, you know, I, I try to push them on their thinking. Right. If if their thought is going kind of in the in the direction that I think is wrong, um, which, of course, doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just that I think it's wrong. Right. <laughs> so. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, maybe that's one type of exercise I, I do in the classroom to try to help. 
Yes. Um, those, those discussion groups are actually, I remember them being super helpful. And even now, I mean, mm-hmm. think about, you know, graduate level work as well. It's, it's very much discussion um, right. heavy. And I think those are really productive ways. And even engaging with my family in conversations or friends in conversations, I, I think it's super important to do that. And so I think it's great that that's what you're doing for your undergrads. <laughs> yeah, um, great. Yeah. <laughs> Another question I have actually is, again, something I do like to to ask any type of scholar, you know, someone doing this kind of work is, what are some of those obstacles that you're facing um, and doing your work, maybe thinking about your work, um, getting your work out there, um, things of that nature? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, the the amount of obstacles is something that I think is important, but I, I don't know if it's like been my main focus, I guess, you know, largely, largely because I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of the autobiographical, like as a, as a model, right? Although I do respect those who can do it and can do it well. I don't know if everybody can do it well, but I guess, you know, I could say that like for me, um, you know, like many black people, right? In academia, the challenges have been a lack of opportunities um, now some of those, you know, today, some of those opportunities are opening up with, you know, the distribution of my work. Um, but I think many of those opportunities that are open up now, right. Some of my peers from the same place, right. From the same starting position had those opportunities from the start. So I think that this is, you know, just a, a product of a larger, you know, racist society, right. Of which the university is not separate from. Um, So more than anything, I think, you know, understanding that such issues like that remain a problem is is the key for me. Um, But yeah, those, I guess that's, you know, a way of thinking about some of the obstacles that I've I've faced. Yeah, I, I definitely think, especially the point you made about the university not being separate from a racist society, right? It's very much part of it. And yeah, there are some very real issues that that are hopefully going to get better in the future. Um, but again, it's, it is something that I, I appreciate you raising and kind of the last note, I guess would be, I know that you're, you have a forthcoming book, which is super exciting. Um, what basically are you excited about with that? And then any other type of work as well that that's coming out? Yeah. Um, I think I'm, you know, most excited with the book, uh, um, in terms of, I guess maybe answering both of your questions. Um, writing this book has really kind of inspired me for my next project, right? Because there's, you know, things that you start to work on in your current project that you're like, this isn't this isn't fully fleshed out yet, right? There's so much more I can do with this thing. Um, and I really started that, I think, with this project because I started to really delve into the history of the development of communication studies and black studies. Um, And I think the interesting thing is that both of these disciplines really emerge around the same time, right? What we call communication studies um, enters into the university around the exact same time as what we call black studies. Um, So, I find that I find that interesting, right? I find that to be a very uh, important 
thing to think about, which isn't to say that they're the only disciplines that emerged at the same time, but they are two um, that I am closest connected to. Um, so in my next book, what I'm really going to do is I, I want to basically write a alternative history of the field of media and communication studies um, by centering black studies as, as a, not as a starting point, but as a, as, as something that is happening at the same time. Right. And to say, what are, why are they different? Right. What happens? Um, and I have a lot of answers to that. I have a lot of thoughts about that. Right. I think, you know, a central component of that is the cold war, right? The discipline of communication studies is very much wedded with cold war money, right? With the battle against the Russians, right? Whereas black studies is very much concerned with what would a black socialist project look like, right? So when you have those two very different positions, right? And they're starting at the same time, I think it's interesting to think about how they overlap and contradict one another. So that's my that's my next book. It's not done yet. It's I think that's wonderful. Completely theoretical right now, but <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's that's again. I resonate deeply with what you said about you're in the middle of a project and all of a sudden you're like, oh my god, this whole other thing I want to write about, and then you have to like yeah. start a new document and just throw those thoughts down so you don't forget them, but. <laughs> I'm sure yeah, the work is never very, done. No, never. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for sharing your um, your different experiences, um, the way that you think about the world, um, the way that you're overlapping some very important scholars, obviously, um, and you're doing it so beautifully together within media studies and media philosophy. So. I want to thank you so much for really sharing all of that with us and I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you Bailey. I appreciate you inviting me here. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Dr. Armand Towns about media, technology, race, and blackness. If you would like to find out more about Dr. Towns' work, visit rhetoric.richmond dot edu slash faculty slash a towns slash i'm bailey troutman today's host of looks like new a production of cu's media enterprise design lab you can find out more about our work at colorado.edu slash lab slash med lab if you liked what you heard please spread the word about the show and consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to podcasts we would love to hear your comments or guest ideas you can reach us by emailing medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us for another conversation next month.